All right, so this is the third lesson on uh, the book of Lamentations, and finally we get to chapter one. Uh, it's kind of embarrassingly long. We had an invitation and then an introduction, and now finally we're here. So I, I put up on the screen a quotation. This is Calvin uh, on the first verse of Lamentations. He's actually commenting on the, I think, the first word, which uh, is in the New King James Version, how, sometimes translated alas, it's a it's really a cry of uh, astonishment. So Calvin says, the prophet could not sufficiently express the greatness of the calamity expect, except by expressing his astonishment. He then assumes the person of one who on seeing something new and unexpected is filled with amazement. It was indeed a thing incredible, for as it was a place chosen for God to dwell in, and as the city Jerusalem was not only the royal throne of God, but also, as it were, his earthly sanctuary, the city might have been thought exempted from all danger. That uh, thing incredible, the, the astonishment of uh, what has happened to Jerusalem is a really important thing for us to keep in mind. We're living at a different time. We know the history uh, probably, but perhaps we can't uh, so easily put ourselves in the, the place of uh, Jeremiah and who as uh, Calvin says, uh, assumes a person of one who has just seen this and cries out in astonishment. So I'm going to read uh, the first uh, 11 verses of, uh, you know, trying to decide. Let's read the first 11 verses of uh, Lamentations. You come early, you get to hear Alexander Scorby reading it. Now you're stuck with me, but let's read verses 1 through 11. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the splendor of Zion all and from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food. 
to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. And just by way of introduction, I want to give you a little bit of, uh, not an outline so much of the chapter, but uh, the way to listen for two different voices who speak in the chapter. So in almost all of verses 1 through 11, which we just read, it's the narrator, uh, as Calvin said, that it's uh, Jeremiah speaking in the person of one who is uh, looking on the scene and is astonished. The two exceptions uh, to that are when in verses, um, at the end of verse 9 and at the end of verse 11. By the way, the New King James Version, and I think the ESV also uh, put quotation marks around uh, the speech of the other person, uh, Zion. So at the end of verse 9, you can see the quotation marks, Oh Lord, behold my affliction. She, she breaks into uh, the narrator's description and cries out to God. And the same thing at the end of verse 11, uh, See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. And then in, from verse uh, 12 to the end of the chapter, so evenly split uh, chapter then, uh, the uh, Zion speaks, the lady Zion speaks and there again, there's one uh, exception in verse 17, the narrator describes her spreading out her hands and says that no one comforts her. So those, those two parts of the chapter are uh, helpful for you to be aware of who is speaking. And the same sort of uh, interchange between the two goes on uh, to some extent in the chapter two. So what is uh, Jeremiah's basic description. Well, you can see it in verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. So Jeremiah speaks of a Jerusalem that has just been destroyed by the Babylonians and all that they have lost as a bereaved and desolate woman. So, by the way, happy Mother's Day. So this is a description and uh, this is the the picture that uh, Jeremiah gives us of Jerusalem. So what I want to do in, in terms of uh, looking at the chapter is not go through verse by verse. Uh, that's because it's just, it's really, uh, well, it's fairly long. It's also uh, just packed with uh, interesting imagery, allusions to the Old Testament, uh, earlier in the Old Testament, and uh, there's a lot, a lot to take in. So I'm going to try to organize it in terms of uh, what I called here a total suffering, and then uh, next, uh, the confession and divine chastening, which are two distinct things, but uh, they go uh, together in, in this chapter, and I don't really want to separate them. And then lastly, look at uh, what hope is uh, represented in the chapter. So first then, let's think a little bit about uh, total suffering. Uh, so, you know, the, the phrase total war has become... Uh, a concept, especially since the 19th century, there's some debate about whether, you know, that's what we're seeing in our own day. But uh, that total suffering is a good way to describe uh, what's going on. And what do I mean by that? Well, for one thing, if you read through the chapter, you'll notice the repetition of the word all. The word all appears 16 times in 22 verses. And it's not just the word all, but also this concept of totality. It's not just that... Uh, all of her people are suffering or something like that. It's that every aspect of her life, again, this is a personified city, has been affected, has been devastated uh, by what has just happened. So it's 
total suffering. You might say it's total chastisement if you want to go to the next point. But I want to, before we think about the aspect of uh, the fact, well, the fact that it's God's hand in all of this chastising her, I want to think first about the suffering, because that's a, a real emphasis of the chapter. It's hard to categorize. It's even, you know, it's not really written in a linear way, but I want to go through some categories of suffering which are represented here. So first, uh, and most obviously, maybe physical. So look at verse 11. Uh, verse 11, all her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their valuables for food to restore life. There's a famine. The city is under siege. At some point, there's no more supply of bread, and her people are dying because they have no food to eat. By the way, this word in verse 11, all her people sigh. I think the ESV may have grown. There are different uh, translations of that. That also is a recurring phrase. It adds uh, this sense of, uh, of extreme suffering to the city because all they can do is uh, sigh or groan. So part of the suffering is just the basic physical suffering. There's no food to eat. But also, of course, is the fact that they are suffering from an attack by a foreign army. Uh, look at verse 15. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. So this, again, this is now Zion speaking and not the narrated describing her. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. See, there's the all my mighty men. It's a totality of destruction. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled is in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. Now, part of the totality here, which is uh, in this verse and also in other verses, which we won't look at, is the totality of devastation at the leadership level of society. So again, you know, we may more directly turn to her sin and the destruction of the temple and that sort of thing. But uh, Jeremiah is telling us that this touches the whole of society. So here, all her mighty men, her, her army is gone. And her leaders, as uh, we read in uh, verse 6, her leaders run away. They're caught, uh, but they try to escape. Her priests and her prophets, her king, it's all gone. All my mighty men. And notice uh, also in uh, verse 15, this. so we talked about this idea of uh, enjambment. Uh, the second line in uh, the New King James, he has called an assembly against me. So they're calling an assembly is the word that's used, for example, in Exodus, when, one, when God wants his people to assemble before him on, uh, on Mount Sinai. It's uh, going to church. God has called an assembly before me. This sounds promising. But, in fact, it's an assembly to crush my young men. So this is the, the overwhelming grief that uh, Jerusalem, that Zion, uh, is undergoing because of the total devastation and the total reversal that we talked about. Instead of assembling for worship, enemies assembled to destroy them. Now, one other category, so that's maybe you'll say physical, societal category, it's kind of hard to describe them. Another category is what I've already mentioned, which uh, we might call uh, spiritual or maybe uh, covenantal. It's closely connected with the uh, warnings of the covenant, even though what we've already read is also that way. And for that, I'd like you to look at uh, verse 10 again. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. So here's a, a woman saying that uh, all the things that she most treasured 
the adversary has taken, he's spread his hand over them. And in particular, uh, it's implied in the last part of that verse that her pleasant things include the temple. She has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those who, whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. Not just anyone could stroll into the, the holy place of God, and yet, and especially not the nations, uh, the uh, uncircumcised nations. And yet she has not only lost her pleasant things, but her pleasant things have been defiled and they've been uh, taken from her. And those pleasant things, especially, as I said, have to do with the, the worship of God and the, the loss of all of the implements of the temple, as well as the what was in the king's palace and in the city. Uh, that's uh, a terrible loss for her. Let's also look at uh, verse 3. Uh, I haven't emphasized uh, the all and all these references, and some of them don't contain the word all because the, the concept is uh, there instead. Uh, verse 3, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. Now this uh, is one example where it's, you need to do maybe a little bit of digging or uh, pay attention to the wording that's used. This is why the Book of Lamentations is, it's so rich and I gave up on actually trying to go through verse by verse. I'm trying to sort of help you to learn how to read it. But the words uh, captivity, affliction, especially affliction and hard servitude are the words that are used to describe the bondage in Egypt. And so what's said here is essentially, you're going back to Egypt again. But there's, there's no hope of an exodus. And that's brought out in a very uh, powerful way when it says she finds no rest. Now this, again, was one of the, the curses in Deuteronomy 28 for uh, breaking the covenant that they would go into exile and they would have no rest. They would have fear all the day. They would not uh, be at rest in the land of exile. It also has a much uh, deeper resonance uh, with concepts that we're very familiar with, right? The, the rest was what God had promised them in giving them the land. In the exodus from Egypt, they were to come into this land. They would have rest from their enemies. The kingdom was to be established. They would not have uh, these kinds of attacks. And especially, they would have rest because of the presence of God among them. They would enjoy rest you might say the, what the Sabbath rest was pointing toward in the presence of God. And they've lost that, right? All her persecutors overtake her, and so the rest is gone. Instead, she's back in Egypt with no hope. Now, uh, there's plenty more you can say about the, the spiritual aspect of that and what's lost, but let me move to one other, and uh, we'll, we'll try to draw some conclusions, and I'll let you uh, make your own observations. Uh, a third category is, uh, again, based on a repetition, and that is, she says, she has no comforter. So many commentators on uh, Lamentations 1 notice, uh, in addition to this repetition of the word all, that she says five times, I have no one to comfort me. And that's underlined even at the, in the first verse, which doesn't use that word, because she's lonely. Now, this is something that may be harder for us to understand, but in uh, 
in their world, uh, when you suffered, you always had people around you comforting you. You may have a lot of people around you comforting you. There, that was the thing that was done. And here to, to mourn by herself and to have uh, no one to comfort her is a terrible thing. So let's look at the next verse, at verse 2, where she does refer to this uh, lack of comfort. She weeps. Uh, she, so this is Jeremiah, the narrator speaking. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So it's not just that those who should be her friends fail to comfort her. It's that, in fact, her friends and her lovers have turned on her. They have betrayed her. They have gone against her. And I'll explain in a minute the illusion that that has. But again, before we get to that, you need to see the suffering that's represented in that. The betrayal. I'm sitting here. I've lost all these things. And not only is there no one to comfort me, but the ones who said they were my friends have turned against me. Now that uh, idea, as I said, is repeated, but let me, let me just pause a second to explain who the friends and, uh, friends and uh, lovers are. The word lovers uh, is, appears again in verse 19, and there again the emphasis is that they have betrayed her. Uh, if you read the prophets who preceded Jeremiah and read Jeremiah himself, you'll know who these lovers are. These are the other nations, the nations with which she made agreements to protect her. So, for example, Egypt was supposed to be her ally against Babylon. And other nations also were supposed to step in and help her uh, when any one of them was attacked. But they failed to do that. They failed her in that way. And that's uh, why she has none to comfort her. And this is sort of getting into the next category of the confession. It's not only that it was a political alliance, but it was a religious alliance also. That's why they're called lovers, because she is supposed to belong to God. But instead, she has given herself over to other nations, and political alliances were also religious alliances. So she took their gods uh, for herself also. Now, I want to come back to that in terms of an application uh, you might immediately say, well, she brought this on herself then. Okay, so again, before we get there, let's just think about her situation. Those who claim to be her friends, those who said who would help her, now mock her, and now they are her enemies. And that mocking and uh, the shame and the humiliation is another part of the, you might say, the lack of comfort. It's an aggravation of her loneliness. She's alone except for all the people who are making fun of her, who are saying how great she was and how mighty has been her fall. This is an idea of the lack of comfort is especially brought out in verse uh, 16. So I'm counting you all, by the way, to have your Bibles and look at these verses with me, otherwise you're not going to get that much out of it. Uh, notice in verse 16 uh, what it says, For these things I weep, my eye, my eye overflows with water, because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. The, the wording of that verse suggests that she's thinking of the comforter, who is God himself. The one who should be there to restore her life is far from her. 
So her sense is that God is far from her. Not only have her lovers, her friends failed her, but God himself, the one who should be with with her to restore her, she senses is far from her. So that is the the devastation, the the lack of comfort that she's experienced. So I want to pause at the end of this section, and as I said, I'll give you a chance to put in your own reflections, but since I'm up here, I get to do mine first. Let me just uh, remind you of some of the purposes for studying Lamentations uh, before we think uh, further about the next points about her confession and her transgressions. It's kind of easy to go ahead and say, like I said, well, you know, it's her fault. She had these friends, but they shouldn't have been her friends. She made these false alliances. So, you know, I don't really care about her suffering. Let me just just, uh, go ahead and hear her confession. That's a a bad way to read the book of Lamentations. I tried to emphasize in our first and maybe the second study also that part of the reason God gives us a book like this is to teach us to lament. And that's part of the reason why the Psalms of Lament are there also. We don't know how properly to pour out our grief before God in a way that befits a believer. And if we just pass over her suffering, we're not going to learn the lesson that we're supposed to learn from Lamentations. If I could reinforce that in a more powerful way, Christ wept over Jerusalem when they were going to crucify him. He didn't say, you guys are lost, I don't care about you. No, he wept because he knew the next destruction of Jerusalem that was coming in 70 AD. So Christ also understood their sin, and yet he wept. He was concerned for them. Now, this is why I tried to make that point in the invitation that you know these are our fathers. That's what Paul says to 1 Corinthians. This is not some disconnected experience of some ancient people who are long gone. What do we care? These are our fathers. And as Paul says, right, we on whom the end of the ages has come, we should learn. And one thing we should learn is how is it that we undergo severe loss and suffering? What is it that we do? One other comment I want to make about uh, the sorrow and the suffering in the book and application to us is uh, a reflection on uh, verse 12. I mentioned before this uh, verse is uh, taken up by the librettist and Handel's uh, Messiah, uh, applied uh, as Christ uh, speaks. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. It's not really, I think, as if you could measure sorrow on a scale and say mine is worse than yours and everyone's sorrow is uh, different. But this verse does call us to think not only of Jerusalem's suffering, but of the greater sufferings of uh, the one of whom, as we discussed before, Jerusalem, the land of uh, Judah, is in some ways uh, pointing forward to. He is the one who bore truly the infliction of God's fierce anger, as it says at the end of the verse. He is the one whose sorrow is incomparable, the one who gave up all things, who became a servant and suffered under uh, the wrath of God on our behalf. So when you think of the sorrow of Lady Zion, um, think of the, the one who bore our sins and bore our sorrows. Uh, on our behalf also. 
Well, there are lots of applications, and I wrote down some others, but let me pause and see if you have uh, thoughts. Okay. Again, we're not to the stage of this is all her fault. Okay, she's going to say that. But um, what other reflections do you have on the, the uh, total suffering that we've talked about? Vicki. Yes, it is. And I, I think maybe our tendency is to think personally, but Lady Zion is a corporate person, and I think that's right. You know. uh, national sins, the sins of the church, um, in her case, they were closely allied, and in our case, they're definitely not. Good point. Other, other comments or questions? Dave? This link between being in Egypt and a potential exodus, should we be thinking more along the lines of hope or rest? Hope or rest. Oh. Uh, yeah. They lost both. Uh, but I'm going to make the point at the end of our study that uh, God promises to restore both. And I think the... Uh, yeah, what I was trying to do, and I'm not sure if I understand your, your question, what I was trying to do is make us see that the devastation that comes from the loss of both of them. So yeah, there was hopelessness because she didn't see any exodus in sight. The exodus was to Babylon, if you want to talk about exodus. It was a reverse exodus. And it was an exodus, in, therefore, in which there was no hope. Is that, yeah, yeah. I guess it's a very, the idea of rest is a very deep uh, biblical concept that um, it's one of those things that if you don't read Lamentations carefully, you don't pick up on, but it's, it's an important idea. Okay. Let's turn then to the uh, confession and divine chastening. As I said, the Two concepts are separate. Uh, the, it is possible to confess your sins without at the same time uh, stating in the same verse that God is uh, chastening you for your sins. But in fact, that's not what happens in Lamentations. You probably noticed that in the verses uh, that we've already read, I mean, even the ones that I sort of picked out and I didn't point that out. But now let's, let's think for a little bit about this uh, connection between confession and divine chastening. And uh, before I forget it, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll look at a quote from Calvin, but um, it providentially this ties into the sermon, at least as far as I could read the title for the sermon and the text for the sermon, because this is the model for suffering from a godly point of view, and that is to turn to God and confess sin. Am I right, Bruce? So there's a connection there. It's completely unplanned, but uh, so that's, maybe that makes up for talking about this on Mother's Day, I don't know. So let's, uh, let's look at some of these. Uh, so in short, uh, both the narrator and Lady Zion again and again say it's, her, it's Jerusalem's sin, it's Judah's sin, but the suffering has come at the hand of the Lord. So let's go back uh, to verse 5. Her adversaries have become the master, her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. 
Now, the, the word that's used there for transgressions, so obviously, okay, let me just say up front, there it is. The Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. She's confessing her sins, or the narrator is uh, speaking of her sins and saying everything that has happened is because of the Lord afflicting her. But to highlight exactly what it is she has done, uh, notice in verse 5 the word uh, transgressions. Um, the idea of, or the, the significance of this word is rebellion against the covenant Lord. So this is a word that's used, uh, for example, in well, lots of places in the De book of Deuteronomy in connection with uh, rebellion against the covenant that God has made. Uh, and notice that the affliction from the Lord is specific in that her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. That highlights this connection with rebellion and breaking the covenant. Because again, this was one of the curses of the covenant. You know, keep, you know, read Deuteronomy 28 every time you read uh, Lamentations uh, or uh, Leviticus 26. The children going into captivity before the enemy was one of the curses that was to come on them. And again, we need to reflect a little bit on the significance of this. This means her future is cut off. She's lost, as uh, she says uh, later on in uh, verse, uh, I lost the verse, I think it's verse 19, uh, she's, she's lost her sons and her daughters. Sorry, it's verse 18. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. So it's not just that she misses her children, but it's that her future is gone. Okay? All of these are lost. And that's the the response of the Lord, if you want to put it that way, for her rebellion against the covenant. He brings that uh, curse on her for that. Uh, let's look at verse uh, 18 also. Uh, the Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now all my peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. So that's, that's the verse that I just referred to in terms of the, the loss of her future. But uh, notice, uh, first of all, the confession that God has done this in terms of saying the Lord is righteous. So it's one thing to say, I have sinned and God has brought it on me. It's another thing to say that this is, the Lord is right in doing what he's done. It's a confession of the, just, the justice of God's action in chastising her. Again, the word that's used here is an uh, uh, interesting and helpful word. The word uh, rebelling against his commandment is uh, rebelling against the word of his mouth or against his mouth. And this, this phrase, rebelling against the mouth of the Lord, again, is used several times. Uh, Numbers chapter 20, verse 24 is an example but it's used to describe especially the rebellion of the people in the wilderness wanderings. Again and again, they rebelled against the word of God. And this underlines a very uh, significant point, which is that they didn't learn their lesson. Right? They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And so using this language, uh, Jeremiah is undermining, uh, underlining the fact that they are still acting like that rebellious generation in the wilderness. Like our fathers, we have gone astray, as we sing in the Psalms. 
There are lots of other verses we can look at, but I purposely trimmed both the point before this and this one so that we can try to get to a time of reflection. Let me emphasize, though, that you know one response to a reader of the history, uh, apart from a biblical point of view, would be to say, well, the Babylonians were more powerful uh, than the land of Judah. They had a fortified city, but they lost, and that's just the way it was. The Book of Lamentations doesn't actually name Babylon at all. Now, they do say the enemy has done this, and uh, they do refer to uh, at least one other nation. But the emphasis again and again in Lamentations is their own sin and the Lord's chastening hand in doing every one of these things that she experiences. Every one of them comes on her because she has rebelled against God. Again, I want to turn from this uh, to the point about hope, but let me just make one uh, brief application, which is that in, in all of our suffering, whether we can connect it directly with our own sins the way they could or not, we should see God's hand. That's a good thing. Would you rather believe that all your sufferings are random, that these guys are just stronger than you are and have overtaken you for that reason? No, another thing we learn from Lamentations and how to lament is to attribute all the things that we experience to the hand of God and to turn to him in confession and acknowledgement of our sins. So this is uh, the quotation from Calvin that I mentioned in the uh, He's commenting on verse 20 in particular, but it applies really to this topic. By these two marks, the church is distinguished from the unbelieving, even by repentance and faith, to sigh and to mourn in adversities and to lament also their miseries are common to both. I think this is maybe the connection with the sermon, right? So everyone's sorrowful when they suffer, right? That's, that's not a special uh, distinguishing mark of the children of God. But he goes on to say, but the children of God differ greatly from the ungodly because they humble themselves under his mighty hand and confess that they deserve to suffer punishment. And further, this point is important, point is important, further they cast not away the hope of salvation, but implore his mercy. So as I said, um, instead of taking time now to reflect on God's hand of chastisement and their confession of sin. I want to turn to hope and then maybe we can reflect on both of them um, at the end. So what what hope is there? This goes back, I think, to, to Dave's question. Was it really completely hopeless? And uh, the answer is no, although uh, perhaps that hope is not as prominent here as it will be. Well, it's definitely not as prominent here as it will be in chapter 3. But still, there are things that we can learn about our own lamentation, our own crying out to God to encourage us. The first point is that crying out to God is a sign of hope, right? This is what one of the points that Calvin uh, just made. Look at verses uh, 20 through 22. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I've been very rebellious. Outside, the sword bereaves. At home, it is like death. She's calling out to God to see. She wants the Lord to know what she has experienced. And that's because she has faith. 
That's the same thing in Psalm 88, one of the darkest psalms in this altar. The psalmist there because the psalmist had hope. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered to write it. Now, the hope doesn't, you might say, shine through in, even at the, by the end of the psalm. But it's the same thing here. And just to complete that thought, that crying out to the Lord shows hope, the, the covenant which she has broken has promises for restoration again and again. This was Jeremiah's book of hope, uh, beginning in chapter uh, 30 of Jeremiah. This is Deuteronomy 30, just two chapters after the curses that were going to come on the covenant, uh, covenant breakers. She had reason to hope. So even her allusion to the covenant breaking connects in her mind the faithful God who says he will restore her. Uh, two more points on the hope and the uh, these could go in different orders. But uh, the fact that she said in uh, verse 18, the Lord is righteous, is also hopeful. Because the one who is righteous will act to deliver her as he has promised to do. He is faithful and he is righteous. Let me just make a, take this opportunity to explain what may seem kind of jarring, and that is uh, the last... Uh, couple of verses of Lamentations 1 called out a curse on her enemies. I, I, I didn't read the last part. I read the first part. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me. These false friends, these lovers, she says, Lord, may you do what you have said you will do. But that also is an indication of hope because She's relying on God's word. Jeremiah had prophesied judgment on Babylon and the other nations around. And uh, you can find, again, promises like that. So she believes God will deliver her. That's why she can pray to God for the destruction to fall on those who uh, wrongly attacked her. But then uh, one other point in terms of her hope, and that is her lack of comforters and her confession in verse 16 that God is the comforter is ultimately pointing to God as the source of all hope and comfort. Think of it this way. God, in his chastising hand, removed from her all of her false comforters. He left her no one else. This is God's goodness to her in taking away false friends and lovers. I'm not saying it felt good. I'm saying God had a good end in it. The one who even removed a sense of his comfort was doing it to drive them back to himself so that they might find hope in him. And I mentioned before in, uh, in our introduction the connection with the book of Isaiah. So let me just uh, close this part by reading at least a part of uh, Isaiah 61. The hope that ultimately comes from the one who suffered. This is uh, the Messiah speaking in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. It's the one who could cry out, and I, as in Lamentations uh, 1 verse 12, is there any sorrow like my sorrow? who is therefore able to comfort all who mourn. 
and also to bring the day of vengeance of our God in fulfillment of that same uh, covenant promise. Okay, any uh, comments or thoughts while I had in mind, especially the confession and divine chastening or the hope, but maybe on the chapter as a whole? Other reflections you have? Yes, Vicki. Yeah, Yeah. 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 That's exactly what I'm hoping I can get us in the habit of doing when we read. That's right. I mean, that's exactly the contrast. This used to be a joyful place. There used to be people flocking through. And one of the examples of enjambment uh, later on, I think in chapter two, is and now the people who are flocking through are. Babylonians here to destroy us. But the emptiness, the silence of the cities was uh, a reminder of her loneliness and no comfort. And the poetic effect of having this, you know, the streets moan, having them speak uh, of their suffering is it's very moving. Yes, uh, sorry, I was looking down at Maybe then first. Uh, is a place where the difference between theory and practice is yeah. really stark. There's in my own life that there's maybe two example areas where you, you would you would think that it, like it would be easy to do this or something to see the hand of God's hand in. And there's one would be just the clearly nature. Well, if this thing happens from nature, like hail comes through and destroys all your property, which happened to me this week. Well. That's just the hand of God, right? But it's, you know, it seems clear that it's still, it's hard in the trenches to realize, oh, this is what he's doing. And maybe even harder is when people, this came up somewhere, if what's happening is at the hand of other people. So you yeah. you know what the words say. Like, you know that the truth is, well, it's really the hand of God. Like Joseph with his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant for good. But when that other person, especially with somebody who's very familiar is doing something and they're not stopping or they're not doing something that you've been hoping for or like the community here, like I wish the church would do this or I wish these people would do that or I wish this person would stop doing this. Is it the thing to recognize, well, that may be true actually, but is it really the hand of God? And are you looking at him? It's not easy to talk about. It's pretty hard to actually do. Yeah. Uh, I uh, agree and I think it's one reason God gave us five chapters of this, because uh, it's it's a hard lesson to learn. Is it the right way to put it? It's a hard thing to to get into your head to not just know God is sovereign; He's working out His purpose. He uses evil men to do things, but to be able to take your sorrow to God in those terms. Yeah. Good. Jeff, I was just reflecting on the. Sort of difference in perspective from the prior lamentations to our own day was the idea of the hope, right? I think we would say probably the situation's hopeless because, you know, but all, whereas they're looking long, I'd say right. long term, yeah. more than 70 years of being restored to the land. Also, this uh, the part of the lament is verse. Uh, 
18 with all the virgins and young men going into captivity. And this idea, this sort of generational thing, I think in our own culture, we're so prison focused. A lot of people don't have to, don't have children, don't, you know, yeah. looking forward, they, we, our culture devalues children. You know, this is just this different perspective. Yeah. Um, C.J. Williams, who's a father-in-law of Stephen Mulder and preached here, has a series of sermons on Lamentations in a book that's supposed to appear at some point. But one of the points he makes is that there's a verse that says she did not remember her future. She didn't know, she didn't think about what God had panned out for her. And I think in our case, we, it's not that we don't remember it. We don't, don't even know it. We don't think about the purpose that God has. Yeah, that's a good point. We forgot our future. Uh, Dave. To fortify this point that you were making early on about the word all and yeah. the totality, uh, there are other words, multitude, many, the translated by the King James, yeah. that don't have sort of the, uh, the without exception, attribute of all, but, but speak to the volume and the weight described. Yeah, that's right. And it's really hard to bring out the idea of totality without spending a long time going through a list, but um, that's right. And I, th I thought about this, uh, I didn't make this point in the application, but you know, we talk about total depravity, that's one of the T of the tulip, and um, you know, the curse on creation is total in that way also. We run into it all the time, and it's hard it's hard to explain everywhere you see the effects of the, the fall and things. Yeah, and I, I think that, yeah, the multitudes, the, the extent of uh, destruction is used by a variety of words to point out how devastating it is. So uh, the plan is that next week we'll do Lamentations again because Pastor is supposed to be in Oklahoma City. Uh, so, Lord willing, next week, chapter two. And let's uh, close in prayer.